if you're visiting with us this morning, we're thankful to have you with us. It's a, it's a blessing for us to be able to spend this time together. We've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves uh, this morning in the 15th chapter of Mark. And I want to begin with a question that uh, I did not previously raise because I think it fits well in the context of what we're studying this morning. And the question is, why was Jesus handed over to Pilate? Now, John gives us a, an answer to that question. John, in John 19.31, it said that Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews replied, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. But there is a more subtle answer here that we need to begin to explore and to recognize. We need to realize that in Acts chapter 7, in the stoning of Stephen, that was something that the Jews did all by themselves without any permission from the Romans. Also in the sixth chapter of Mark, in the story of John the Baptist, John is beheaded by the Jewish king without any approval or consent from Rome. And so the nuance that we need to add to John's statement is simply this, that the Jews could not crucify someone of their own power and authority. They could behead and they could stone but not crucify. And so the question is, in what way would stoning or beheading Jesus not be significant enough for the Jews? What was it particularly or specifically about the cross that made the Jews go through this extra step of seeking Pilate's approval? See, the Jewish intention was not simply just to kill, but it was to discredit Jesus. It was to bring him under this public mockery that one would go through via the cross. So the cross were was all about not just destroying a person, but destroying a person's name and reputation as well. Quintilian writes, speaking of the cross, that whenever, the, whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen, where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. So what we see is that the cross is a public spectacle. It is to be promoted and to be seen by as many people as possible. Cicero writes in speaking of the cross, he says, The idea of the cross should never come near the bodies of Roman citizens. It should never pass through their thoughts, eyes, or ears. He goes on to say it is the most cruel and horrifying punishment. And so when it comes to the cross, it is easy for us to speak about the physical pain that one would endure on the cross. And yet as we read Mark's gospel, Mark seems to be uniquely interested in something other than the pain that Christ endured on the cross. In Mark's gospel, it seems that the cross functions much like it did in a public way. It functions as a parody of sorts. A parody, of course, is an imitation of the style of a particular writer artist or genre with a deliberate exaggeration for comic effect. See, those who challenged the power of Rome would be the only ones who were crucified. Those who tried to get a following that, that would elevate them enough to promote them to kingship would be the kinds of people, the only kinds of people that Rome 
would put on a cross. And by putting them on the cross, what Rome was doing was having this public play of sorts, a parody of this one who thinks they're going to be lifted up, of this one who thinks they're going to be delivered, and Rome will have some fun with that individual before that individual is ultimately killed. It's as if they're saying, oh, so you want to be lifted up by the people? Well, we'll hoist you up on a cross. You will be elevated. You will be lifted up. It is Suetonius who tells the story of a man named Galaba who was sentenced to crucifixion. And because of his actions against the the ruler there, the officers were instructed to build his cross much higher than the rest. The idea being that the greater the level of rebellion, the higher one was to be placed on the cross to show really how low that one was being put in their eyes. Of course, we know of Jesus that he was placed on a cross that was high enough that a sponge needed to be used to hand it to him on a stick. See, all the actions around the cross are a parody. They're there simply to make fun of Jesus. In Mark's gospel, he says in the 15th chapter, twice that he was mocked, once that he was derided, and once that he was taunted. Take, for example, if you'll open your Bibles to Mark 15, verses 17 through 20, where Mark gives us some of the details of the crucifixion. And in that, you'll see these elements that Mark highlights. They clothed him in a purple cloak. They twisted some thorns into a crown. They began to salute him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck his head with a reed. They spat on him. They knelt down in homage to him. And then once again, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. If you look at just this list, it should become very clear that Mark is not as interested in the ways that Jesus suffered physically. That list is very limited here. But Mark is very interested in the ways that Jesus is mocked and taunted and derided and treated by the people surrounding the cross. See, each of these aspects on this list could have been done with full reverence. Christ did deserve to be placed in a purple cloak showing his royalty. Christ did deserve for those around him to salute him and to hail the King of the Jews. He did deserve for those around him to kneel and to bow before him, but all of this is done not in true reverence, but in mockery, making fun of, making a drama out of this event. See, all throughout this text, there are these jokes that are played on Jesus. Jokes that everyone around would have appreciated the humor and the wit associated with them. And while there's a lot of examples, I'll simply give us these four. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh. It's a beverage fit for a king. And so here they're saying of the king, Here, O king, let me get you a drink. Let me be of service to you, the great king. And yet they do it in mockery of him. They take his clothes... And they divide it among them. 
And we must remember that these clothes that they're dividing among themselves are the very same clothes that that woman with the flow of blood reached out and said, if I can but touch his cloak. And that that one who wore those clothes, who had that power, now allows his clothes to be divided as if bartered in trade amongst the people. There's an inscription above him that read the king of the Jews. Rome is, of course, saying, here is your king, seated not on a throne, but on a cross. And who's bold enough and brave enough to worship a king? Who's on a cross. They mock him saying save yourself and come down from the cross. Or they say he saved others but he cannot save himself. And in fact the irony here is that if Christ so wished. And if he so willed he could have come down. He does not have power simply to deliver others. He does have power to deliver himself and yet he chooses not to. As Paul writes in Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, the culmination of the cross is a process that started in the 14th chapter. We could call it the exodus away from Jesus. Mark is wanting us to see that Jesus is alone and isolated on the cross. See, the cross almost functions kind of like tear gas where you throw it there and everyone just disperses. Because who wants to be near this type of king? Who wants to be near this type of Messiah? The shepherd indeed is being struck and clearly the sheep are scattering. See, the cross will eradicate anyone who would consider following Jesus. The cross serves for Mark as a litmus test of sorts. The cross is like an x-ray machine that lets us look inside. It is easy in certain contexts to profess your allegiance to Christ. Oh, but it is the cross that will show what is truly inside. Will people remain? Will they stay faithful? See, it is at the cross that we find that there is what there was an argument earlier about in Mark chapter 10. There was an argument. James and John wanted to sit one at his right and the other at his left. And now Mark, as he tells this story, he says there is one at his right and there is one at his left. But nobody's fighting for those positions now, are they? The irony that those who wanted so desperately to be near Jesus now want nothing to do with him and all around Jesus people are mistreating him here except that there is one person who it seems does some act of kindness to Jesus if you look at verse 21 we learn of a man named Siren of Cyrene and the text says they compel the passerby who was coming from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. So we find that Simon carries not likely the entire cross, but the crossbar there that Jesus would have been expected to carry, but finds himself so weak and Simon carries it. But we need to know why the text says that Simon carried it. He was compelled 
or pressed into service or forced. This is the very thing that the Jews hated about the Romans. That the Romans at any time could sequester them and say, you are required to do this. Just like if somebody asked you to carry their bag for them one mile, you were required to. And now we find Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry this cross. See, this is what the Gentile leaders do. They lord it over people. And this is a very big difference between how God relates to people. He invites. Jesus also was compelled to go to the cross. Mark tells us in Mark 8, 31, if anyone, or he invited people, he says, if anybody wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves. And it's the exact same word, I wrote, take up their crosses and follow me. There is no compelling there. There is simply an invitation. Whoever is willing to follow me must be willing to take up their crosses. And yet the only example we find of one who will take up their crosses because they were forced by the Romans to do it. Why does God not just force us to take up the cross? Why does God invite us to participate in the process? It is because God wants us to do the very thing that Jesus has done. Jesus, too, was compelled to take up his cross. In verse 831, we're told that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering. The word is day, meaning it is necessary. Jesus is also saying, essentially, he is compelled, but he is compelled in a very different way than Simon of Cyrene. He is compelled by his relationship with his Father. We know that Christ goes willingly to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wrestles there, and ultimately he decides that he will submit to his Father's desire. So the question becomes, first of all, will you take up your cross? And secondly, perhaps more importantly, will you voluntarily do it? Because in Mark's gospel, people are not lining up for this responsibility. The only one who does what Jesus says is because they were forced to, other than Christ, who willingly gave himself over, and he bore what was necessary on the cross. See, we are not to see the crucifixion as Jesus' one-time example of obedience, that we stand back and watch what he did, but we are called to participate And the very things that Jesus underwent on the cross. In fact, the cross is like a paradigm for how we are to live. Jesus is both showing us and inviting us to participate in this cruciform life. He is calling for us to carry his cross. Because the irony here is that Christ needed someone else to be a part of his mission to go to the cross. As one carried the cross on his behalf. See, and it seems like at least Simon's sons made the decision to voluntarily pick up the cross. We see in Mark's telling that this is the father of Alexander and Rufus. And we say, who are Alexander and Rufus? That doesn't help us. But the original audience, Mark's audience in Rome, would have said, oh, 
I know who Alexander and Rufus are. They were given as a point of reference. In fact, when Paul writes the congregation in Rome in the 16th chapter, the 13th verse, he mentions a man named Rufus. That if this person was simply unknown, Mark would have done what he did in 1536 and simply said, someone. This is a person they know through Alexander and Rufus, people who later chose, unlike their father who was compelled to take up their cross, they voluntarily have now become disciples of Jesus Christ, people who are bearing his cross. And so we have this movement away from Jesus. Mark is interested in those who are around Christ at the cross and how they do. So in chapter 15, verse 20, what do the soldiers do? They mock him. What do those who pass by do? They deride him. The chief priests, along with the scribes in verse 31, they also mock him. And in Mark's telling of this story here, we find that those who were crucified with him also taunted him, verse 32. And so what we are finding is, is kind of like a funnel of sorts, that as we get closer and closer to Christ's moment of death on the cross, there is increasing abandonment. Everyone who is around the cross, and Mark is interested in their reactions and response, they want nothing to do with this. And it culminates at this point where Jesus says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has intended to give his life as a ransom for many, and now he experiences the icy chill of separation from the Father. This, I believe, was the ultimate penalty that Christ paid on the cross, the abandonment of the Father. Psalm 22 is this cry about God's delay in response. It is not a recognition that God's plans have all fallen apart. It is not a recognition that God is not in control. But it is simply saying, God, your intervention needs to come now because this hurts. That's what Christ is calling for, is God's quick intervention. To bring about the salvation that he knows is coming because the delay is where the pain is. Perhaps the best and most poignant way to say it is this is hell for Jesus. Separated from the Father whom he knew since the very beginning of the world, even before its creation. And how long will he endure this separation? And we find in the 37th verse, then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And what happens next is of utmost importance. What's going to happen here? We'll mark then add a line that says, the end, thanks for reading along. Will the final credits begin to roll? Or is there more to the story? 
And Mark will tell us, beginning immediately following the crucifixion, that this is the start of something new. Mark points to two things that indicate this is the beginning of something new. The first is that the temple, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. Now what Mark is saying, there are two possible curtains. There were two temples, curtains in the temple. One was at the entrance of the Holy of Holies, and the other was what separated the court of Israel from the court of women. And yet they both seem to carry the same sense or sentiment. If it was the Holy of Holies, there are two possibilities in one the temple curtain was torn. Number one, it was either so that God could get out. This is now to symbolize that God is now leaving his residence within the temple, and he is now moving into the neighborhood of the people. A similar movement that we found in Jesus in John 1.14, where the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or it is possible that the Holy of Holies is torn so that now people can come in and have access to Christ, to God through Christ. Or it is possible that this is the curtain between the court of women and the court of Israel and again has the same sentiment for people to get in. And either way that we read this, the ultimate purpose is that there can be close relationship between God and His people through Jesus Christ. And notice the irony of how it is that we get to have the most intimate relationship with the Father is through the Son suffering with abandonment. He was apart from the Father, abandoned by the Father, separated from the Father, so that we never would have to be. The temple curtain is torn to show we will receive His reward. He paid our payment of abandonment from the Father, so we receive His reward, access to the Father. His loss becomes our gain. The way that Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Himself sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And then we are told that when the centurion who stood facing Him saw this, How he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was God's son. We were told at the very beginning, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, that this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. At Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven said, You are my Son, the Beloved, and with you I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, again the cloud from heaven, the voice said, This is my Son, the Beloved, listen to Him. But there has not yet been a single human, a single person. The demons have recognized that He is God's Son, but there has not been a single person who has confessed this identity of Jesus, that He is God's Son. And the irony is that all of the mockery that all of the things that were done to put Christ low, we would think would disconfirm His identity as the Son. But we come to find, much like the centurion did, that all of these things are in fact affirming Him. What we have just witnessed is the inauguration of the kingship of Jesus. And no, there are no fancy thrones. There is no true praise and worship. There is mockery. There is rejection. 
just like Philippians 2 tells us. They became obedient even to death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him. So it is through being brought low that Christ was lifted up. And he is recognized here through the cross as the Son of God. And the invitation for us is to ask, who is this who died on the cross? That's the invitation. Is this a man just simply rejected by God? Is this a man who is worthy of all the mockery that was offered to him? Or is this a man who gave his life as a ransom for many, as the Son of God? Everyone else around the cross is essentially saying Jesus dying on the cross invalidates him as God's Son. There's but one person who says, no, in fact, this is what validates him. The fact that God does this, this is a God kind of thing. Truly, this man was son of God. And so I think that our response is twofold. The first is to simply behold. Behold the gift of the cross. The cross will at some point send us out as workers into the field. The cross will at some point change us so dramatically that we will never be the same. But first we simply behold the gift that was given there. And then the second thing we do is we confess the identity of the gift giver. This was given by the Son of God. If you have not yet made that confession, this morning is an opportunity to do that. Who is this man? This is God's Son. And in making that confession, we are entered into the waters of baptism to say, I will go through the same process of being made low and put low. Because just as Christ was raised, I know so also will I be raised. As Christ was exalted, so also his people who follow in this way will be exalted. If you want to respond, uh, give you that opportunity. I'll be in the back. Some of our elders will be in the back. Just come and find us as we stand and as we sing together.